that's kind of how I look at real estate is uh, it's a people business. And so managing those relationships and and figuring out how you can put somebody in a position to, to succeed and help them grow for whatever goal or, or career path that they're on. If you can do that consistently, you're going to do very well because those people are going to go to bat for you every single time. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have Scott O'Neill with me today, the co-founder and principal of FSO Capital Partners, which buys value-add multifamily out in the Phoenix area. We have an incredible conversation today about Scott's journey into real estate. He started as a broker uh, out in Southern California. Uh, brokering smaller multifamily deals. We talk about how he built a remarkable career there and then eventually grew into becoming an investor himself and eventually building a $100 million portfolio of apartments around Phoenix. So thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey and enjoy today's episode. Scott, welcome to the show today, man. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm excited. And uh, for everybody listening, this is Scott's first podcast, so no pressure. All right, Scott? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm hoping I can uh, I can live up to your Twitter introduction there, calling me a, a legend. You are a legend. You're one of the original crew, man. <laughs> I've learned so much from you, and that's why I'm excited about today. I think we'll we'll have a great conversation. Well, likewise, I can't thank you enough for all your help. So let's let's just get started. How did you grow up? Where did you grow up? What brought you to today? Sure. So obviously, my name is Scott O'Neill, and I grew up in a small town in Southern California, about an hour north of San Diego, called Temecula. And we had moved there, relocated there from Orange County. Uh, my dad was in mortgage banking and owned a fairly large company, had about fifty employees, and. At one point, was 15% of Credit Suisse's business nationwide. Then obviously, we all know what happened in the downturn, and he ended up um, shutting up shop. And at that time, I was at Arizona State playing hockey. I'd just gotten done playing hockey in Canada. Got done with ASU, graduated. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, My roommate at ASU his father owned 60% of CBRE Canada. And so he kind of pulled me aside one day and said, Hey, you know, what are you thinking about doing after you graduate? And I told him, I didn't really know, didn't really have, you know, much of a direction, if any. Uh, And he had told me, you know, you ought to think about getting into investment sales. And I think you've got a good personality and demeanor for it and you'd be really good at it. And so, you know, I'm a 25 year old kid, sitting there looking at a big house and in Scottsdale, that's a second home for these people (laughs) had gotten to know them really well over the course of the four years that I spent with Chris. And so I'm going, man, this looks like a really nice lifestyle. I'm going to, I'm going to go do that. And so, um, one of my hockey coaches from when I was 
a really little guy by a guy by the name of Steve Bogievis, you know, was doing really well selling apartment buildings in LA with Marcus and Millichap. And so I kind of reconnected with him and ended up going to work for him for a few years and then sold, you know, a couple hundred million dollars worth of small apartment buildings. My bread and butter deal was really kind of, you know, and call it the three to $5 million category, you know, 10 to really 50 units. And then, you know, it got to a point where the stuff that I was selling at seven and seven and a half caps in LA, believe it or not, in 2011 or 12, you know, started trading at four and a half caps. And at that time, you're basically borrowing money at, you know, four and a half, five percent. So they were either, you know, negatively leveraged or, or had some small amount of positive leverage. And so I went to some of my clients and just said, Hey, you know, like we've had a good 10 year run here. You guys have done really well with me. If I was willing to go look at some other markets on the West coast, would you guys consider, you know, investing with me? And so a number of those folks were getting older and and said, yeah, absolutely. And so when I was looking at markets, I started looking and obviously Phoenix was a natural fit for me having, you know, been at ASU for four years and so the rents at that time were really on par with like St. Louis. And I'm looking at it going like, hey, massive population growth, good job diversity. You basically had a moratorium on development for five, six, seven years just because Phoenix had gotten so bombed out during the Great Recession. And so I was looking at it and going, this has got a really good recipe for, for rent growth. This market's going to pop. And so picked up and moved out here about four years ago and currently have my newest deal will put me over a hundred million in, in syndications. And so, yeah, we're excited and looking to do more. All right. We're going to get into all that, but there's two things I want to dive in on the personal thing. And if you don't want to go into it, I understand, but I don't want to gloss over the 08 crisis and what you mentioned with your dad's business. What happened and how did that impact you as a person? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we all have a pretty good idea of what happened as far as yeah, the market. Um, the, yeah. The market and the mortgage banking crisis. And so it just got to a point where, you know, he kept funneling money into a company and, you know, spent a couple of years doing that and, and things weren't really getting better and they were really re-regulating the whole industry. And so, you know, he kind of saw that and, and realized that it was really switching from where like a guy with a small shop like him was going to have to go compete with, you know, these giant institutional players. And they were really trying to institutionalize that market, which in some ways is kind of odd because the whole, the whole slogan that came out of that was too big to fail. Right. And so almost made that industry bigger. And so getting to watch that and, you know, doing really well for a lot of years. Listen, it was great. It afforded me an amazing childhood. And because of that, you know, I was able to go do really cool stuff, like go study abroad in Spain and and go play hockey in Canada for a couple of years. But, you know, you kind of get to see what somebody has and, and what it's like when it gets taken away from them. Part of kind of what we're doing now is, you know, kind of what my dad wishes he had done during those really good years and just, you know, how do you preserve that wealth and and preserve your capital, you know, for your kids and for future generations. Yeah. 
And I usually ask this question at the end, but you know, I, I asked the question lately, you know, is there something kind of growing up or vividly in, you know, your younger years that maybe kind of changed who you are, or how you think about the world? And it sounds like this might be one of those moments where for the rest of your life, you'll kind of remember, you know, the meteoric rise and kind of the, the, the feelings of when it doesn't work out and things get taken from you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I also think that it was helpful that you know, I was a little bit older when that happened, right? You know, I was in college. And so you just are able to to comprehend it better, to understand it a little bit better. So, all right. On yeah, a more, absolutely. More fun level. I've heard you're a badass hockey player, played junior hockey in British Columbia and later at ASU. Did you think you were going to be a professional hockey player? Or just tell the audience a little bit about your hockey career. No. So, I mean, you know, obviously I've kind of always strayed from doing the normal things and growing up in Southern California and, and playing ice hockey when the closest rink was 45 minutes away or so obviously was somewhat abnormal. I think there was maybe two or three kids in my town that played ice hockey. And so I started off in roller hockey actually, and, and won a national championship at like 10, 11 years old and did really well with that and got recruited over to ice and, you know, spent, 10 years or so traveling the country and, and playing ice hockey and tournaments and stuff and ended up getting recruited to go play uh, in a league called the Kootenai International Junior Hockey League, which is all over Eastern British Columbia and spent, you know, a couple of years up there with the Spokane Braves um, and we're the only American team in the league, which made it another kind of unique thing. That was a cool experience. And then, went off to ASU and had an absolute blast. Wouldn't change it for the world. You know, I've gotten offered some, some scholarships back East at some small, smaller schools and just decided, you know what, I'm going to be six hours from home, nice, warm weather, pool, girls, <laughs> pool parties, and get to play, you know, some really great hockey. Um, yeah, it was awesome. All right. Now we'll get into some fun stuff. So you, you get the nod that you should go into investment sales. Your coach uh, was out in LA. And so you moved out there. So like one of the things I've learned the most, and I think a lot of people on Twitter have is like, you know, the broker life and and a lot of people want to know how to transition. So let's just start kind of like right from the beginning. What did you walk into? You kind of talked about the deals were a lot more prevalent then. And like, how did you become successful right out the gates and stick with it? Because a lot of brokers, you know, they say it takes a year or two to really catch your rhythm. And a lot of people flame out in that first year or two. They don't want to kind of go through that full cycle. So let's just talk about first couple of years on the job and what you were doing to kind of uh, really build your career. Yeah, sure. So when at that time, they had what was called a sales internship program, or you could go full commission. And so I'm sitting there talking to my dad about what I should do. And so he gives me 7,500 bucks and goes, Hey, you know, here's six months and that's your fuse. You know, if you can't figure it out in six months, you're probably not cut out for it. And so, you know, I got a small studio apartment in Long Beach and just started showing up real early in the morning. And, you know, I'm sure everybody's heard you're just banging the phones, making cold calls, researching property ownership, uh, going on meetings, trying to get any meeting that you possibly can for any reason. And it was a really strange time to start because it was, you know, 
November 2010. And we all know, like I said, what we were coming out of and, and what, what had happened. Property values were really depressed. So nobody wanted to sell. And then finally, you'd find somebody, you'd kick one loose and somebody wanted to sell. And you couldn't find anybody to buy. And then eventually, you'd find somebody to buy it and you couldn't get a bank to finance it. And so you had to get really creative with deal structures. And I was really, really lucky. I had a great mentor uh, and bogey. And so, you know, we were doing seller financing. We were doing all-inclusive trustees. We were doing kind of white night recaps and just trying to get deals done really any way we could. And so the good part about that was I got to learn a lot. The bad part about that is... You know, there wasn't a lot of transaction volume. So it took me about eight months to get to my first paycheck. And the first deal I sold was, you know, a six unit apartment building in Bell, California for 600 grand. And the guy just paid all cash for it. And we pull up to the inspection the day of the inspection. And there's a pipe, you know, running underneath the uh, the carports with water just bursting out of it. And I'm going, oh no, you know, my, my first deal is ruined. And so there's no way that this guy's going to buy anything. And luckily the guy that was buying it owned a small construction company and he was going, oh yeah, that's no big deal. You know, we'll get that fixed. And that's kind of how I started. And your first sort of six months in the business really looked like showing up every day. And my goal was always to try and make 100 cold calls a day. And out of those 100 dials, I wanted to get 10 contacts. So I actually physically talked to 10 people. And out of those 10 people, I wanted to get one meeting, set one appointment a day. And out of those appointments, I wanted to get two to three proposals a week. Uh, and then out of those proposals, you know, you're hoping to get one listing. And so my goal when I started was always to really do to close a deal a month, you know, because I figured if I could close a deal a month, even with these little small deals, you know, I could make a quarter million bucks a year and, and that would be great. And, and thankfully over the course of my brokerage career, I got better at it and, and started building out a little bit better systems and, and was able to grow that number quite a bit, but starting out, yeah, that was my, my goal. Did you come up with that system on your own, kind of the 100 calls, 10 meetings, or is that something that you were being trained on along the way? No. So they wanted you to make 50 dials. It was kind of Marcus and Milchap's thing. It was make 50 dials, 250 dials a week. So one of the things that I did was I started figuring out when you were calling on these small buildings, a lot of these things were owned by like dentists and doctors and attorneys that they're working all week, right? So you can't get a hold of them during the day. So I would go in every other Saturday in the morning and prep a call list that was just for Saturdays. And I would get a hold of a lot more people surprisingly on Saturdays. And so just being able, willing to put in that extra few hours of work, right? Like I wouldn't work a full day on a Saturday, but just going in and cold calling for, you know, two, three hours, you could really get a hold of some people that were really hard to get a hold of and other people weren't getting in touch with, right? And do you have like a script? No. So, I mean, I would just try and figure out some sort of interest generator, you know, like the building sold at a really big number and it's harder at the beginning because you don't have any track record. Once you have a track record, you're kind of calling on your own stuff. Hey, you know, I just closed this building at 123 Main Street and I wanted to share some of the details with you. 
about how that affects the value of your property and kind of just jump into it from there. I got pretty good at figuring out some, some different questions, right? Because every Tom, Dick and Harry is calling these guys and going, Hey, have you thought about selling this building? And you know, it doesn't, I don't know how you probably get a hundred of those calls a week. And so um, it's just not a good way to differentiate yourself and it doesn't add any value to the client. And so, you know, one of the things that I used to do would be like, Hey, you know, do you, do you understand what your property is worth? And if they did, and I would look up the historical loan data and if I could see that their property was most likely paid off, I would say, well, Hey, you know, I'm sure that property's cash flowing really well for you based on when you bought it and what you paid for it. Do you know what your return on your equity is? And so, you know, that's not a question that they're getting a whole lot. And so then, then they become more conversational and are willing to open up to you. And then it becomes, Hey, look, let me sit down with you and, and show you what your return on your equity is. And I might be able to show you how to make some more money. And my job really isn't to get you to transact. My job is to put some options in front of you and show you how you can best position yourself. And right. And that's kind of what my, I guess, brokerage style was the entire time as it was really focused on, on helping other people do what I do now. Right. And, and building and preserving wealth. Kind of weird question, but, and I know you're not a broker anymore, but how do you think the pitch in 2010, like what would you be saying today to somebody in 2021 where financing is abundant, people are making money hand over fist and maybe you hear from brokers a lot, like what's the pitch today versus when things aren't good? Yeah. I mean, if I was pitching today, I would probably be selling the fact that, you know, you've had a huge run up over the last 10 years and you've made a lot of money and maybe it's time to, to take some of that money off the table. But the question today that I ask these guys too, is just, what do you go do with the money? Right. Is you got to have a better alternative for it. And I think that's the difficult part of the world that we're all trying to navigate as best we can because there's not very many good alternatives, right? It's like, do you go do you go take that money and put it into another piece of real estate if you're thinking it might be at an all-time high? Do you go put the money in the stock market, which seems, you know, you could argue is somewhat overvalued. You can't go put it in, in bonds. You could go buy a single tenant deal and and maybe do okay with that. But if it's somebody that's older, maybe what I would do is just try and convince them to to do some seller financing if they have, you know were worried about the liability and, and just wanted a decent return. Because a lot of times these older mom and pops, their rents are so low that they can actually seller finance it to somebody like me and continue making basically the exact same amount of cash flow monthly without without taking on any of the liability none of the headache of uh, management so yeah a lot of times that's a better option for them is there a reason why you were focused on kind of smaller multi-deals versus institutional or that's just kind of the team you were on and that's what happened no so you know like i said we started i started in november of 2010 and so a lot of these guys are going after our elephant hunters is what I used to call them. Right. And so they would be going and trying to hunt these 40, 50, $60 million deals. And LA is a little bit different in that uh, it's very fragmented because of, you know, how old that city is and, and when it was built, it's just a lot of smaller buildings. 
So I just started looking at it and going, if I'm going to go compete with 20 guys for this $40 million deal, I'm, my, my fee is going to get ground down to like, you know, to get paid a point, a point and a half on those deals is pretty common. Well, I could double end a $3 million deal and make a five or a six point fee. And it's the same amount of work. You know, a lot of times with kind of these mom and pop sellers, it's a little bit more hand holding and, and kind of navigating the due diligence process just because, you know, they don't have systems and it's not as professional. But if you can learn how to do that really well, you know, you can make just as much money as the guy selling institutional deals and just make it up in volume. Yep. You said something a second ago, and I, I might botch it. You said all inclusive trust deeds. Is that what you said? Right. What yeah. is that? I've never even heard of that. So it's basically like a wrap. And so the seller is basically giving you a loan and as almost like a second. And then that new deed is wrapping the old trust deed, right? So it's between you and the seller. And so it's another way to get properties financed when there's not a lot of banks. So they're leaving that first in place and then putting almost like a second that wraps the first. Got it. You had a tweet that I like, I still think about all the time. I can either read it or maybe you have it memorized around carnivores, omnivores, and herbivores. Can you tell me what that all meant? I loved it. Yeah, sure. So when I was building out my database, I started seeing that in these older neighborhoods in LA, you would have two or three families a lot of times that controlled, you know, maybe 15 or 20 of these small buildings in a small area. And so it was tough to call them. They've already got relationships. They know the market really well. You're probably not adding a ton of value to them as a young guy. Uh, and so I used to call those guys the carnivores, right? Um, because they're just constantly hunting and, and eating these smaller buildings. And so then you've kind of got herbivores, which would be, you know, maybe a small family or, or a guy that runs a small business that owns two or three buildings and is really trying to grow his net worth. And so he might sell a deal and change uh, exchange up into a larger deal. And, you know, maybe they're transacting one to two times a year, three times a year. And then you've got omnivores, which is all these small single asset owners. And so kind of my philosophy was to go get in really tight with, with the omnivores and the herbivores. And then, you know, if you came across something really great, that's what the carnivore wants, right? That's, that's what they're looking for. So like a guy like you, uh, I know you have that brokerage incentive platform built out, which I think is awesome. And so that's kind of the same line of thought. They might not have it broken out like that, but you know, you're encouraging those guys to go hunt the herbivores and the omnivores because you're a carnivore, right? And so how do you encourage them to put some dinner on your plate? Yep. I love it. I thought that was just a great way to to say it. All right. So I guess like wrapping up our Marcus and Millichap run. So you did that from, two. Th you said 2010 is when you started and you went through basically 2017, 2018? Yeah. And so I left Mark, uh, Marcus after about three years, three and a half years, and then went over to, I was selling a lot of deals to a guy by the name of Martin Ensbury that uh, had a brokerage. And so I went and worked there for a few years and then uh, a partner and I started our own shop 
for the last couple of years and then decided to make the transition onto the principal side. Yep. Got it. Was there like a deal if you just look back at brokerage uh, that was like, it's a deal you'll never forget working on out in California? You know what? I mean, I did, I did a lot of interesting ones. Like, you know, you saw a lot of, of strange stuff on inspections. Like I sold some stuff in a neighborhood called Huntington Park, which is just really gang infested. And I sold it to uh, to a guy that was a dentist out of Orange County. And so we're going through the inspection and, you know, all of a sudden we hear all this rustling in the kitchen. And so the plumber goes and opens the, uh, the kitchen cabinets and this family's got, you know, live chickens in the cabinets that they're, that they're keeping. And so, you know, I can tell you all kinds of stories about the crazy stuff I've seen on inspections, but yeah, that was one that would be memorable. Did you ever run into our friend Moses Kagan? I mean, this sounds like the exact kind of stuff that he was buying. Yeah, you know what? So I really worked in pretty tough neighborhoods. I worked a lot of Southeast LA. So, you know, I don't know how familiar the the your audience would be with like Bell, Bell Gardens, Maywood, Linwood, Downey, which Downey is kind of considered like the Mexican Beverly Hills in LA, right? Like the LA Times even has an article talking about that. But those were kind of the neighborhoods that I worked and that was really just because I was in Long Beach and our office was in Long Beach. And so you have the 710 and the 605 freeways that run straight North out of, out of Long Beach. And so, you know, it was about a 20 minute drive from the office and nobody was really working it. And so, you know, I took it upon myself to go do that. And you've like, you've mentioned doctors and dentists a lot and no offense to any doctors or dentists listening, but like, the typical reputation is that they're not, um, I'm just going to say it, like not the smartest investors ever. Not great with their money, sure. Did you meet ones that were? And like, what is their usual ambition and goal? Is like literally just to place capital, hire some third-party manager, and it be as about as passive as it could possibly be? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I really did all across the spectrum. And so there would be like, you know, guys like that guy out of Orange County that I just mentioned that uh, his uncle was one of the largest owners kind of in that, in that pocket or that sub market um, and was kind of showing him the ropes, but that was his first building that he had bought. And so, you know, he put in third party management, but ended up becoming pretty hands-on. And, and so I actually just referred that deal back to Bogey maybe about a year and a half or two years ago now. He sold it for, to, um, for him. And he bought that building for, God, I think like 85 a door. And we just sold it for like 240 a door. Yeah, and he didn't do a thing to it, right? <laughs> Not one thing. 1920s construction. Um, blows my mind. But yeah, so you'd have guys like that. And, and they were buying it to the point in the cycle where you know, pretty much everybody's done done well as long as you didn't make like a colossal mistake. And then, you know, I sold stuff to uh, to other guys that you know were super hands on, and they would have like a little dental practice in those neighborhoods. And then, you know, they just loved investing in real estate, um, and were very very hands on. One of them even like built out his own kind of little management company. Um, and, you know, super, super smart, intelligent guy. 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, management on those smaller deals is almost like the hardest part of the deal is when you can't afford somebody on site full time. I mean, I think that's what separates like good to great is how do you manage those deals that, you know, you don't have somebody full time. hundred percent. So the, the guy that I mentioned that I sold that first six unit building to my first deal. So I kept a good relationship with him over the years. So I go into uh, to his office one day, and this is years later. And he goes, hey, you know, have I introduced you to my friend Freddie here? And I go, no, I don't think we've met. And so he goes, yeah, Freddie started off as my gardener 20 years ago, came here, didn't speak any English. And Freddie's got about $20 million worth of real estate now. Uh, and he seller financed this guy, his first deal, just to, you know, help him and his wife out because he'd been working hard for him for so many years. And so that was kind of like a moment where the light bulb went off for me where I'm like, okay, I got to get on the other side of this thing. That guy can do it. Then, then I certainly can. That's so awesome. Yeah. I mean, look, real estate isn't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand uh, real estate. Certainly there's risk, but you know, if you buy things right and you have a time in your back, time is uh, on your side, it's really hard to go really wrong in real estate unless you were just over leveraged or doing some crazy stuff to try and juice a return that you probably shouldn't have been in to begin with. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. So you're wrapping up your career and you're deciding that you're going to go be a principal and you've surveyed the market and you're going to Phoenix. So first off, just give us a background real quick on what your current company uh, does and what y'all been up to since moving to Phoenix. Sure. So our company is called FSO Capital Partners and Faulkner, Sherman, O'Neill. Uh, I've got two incredible partners. Uh, couldn't ask for, for any better partners. And I actually met both of them kind of by happenstance. So I met John uh, at the breakfast bar of a breakfast place right after I'd bought my first deal out here. And he heard me talking to somebody else about apartments and came up and goes, Hey, you know, I own a couple of apartment buildings like right around the corner from you. And he ended up investing in, in a couple of deals with me. And then my other partner, Jeff Sherman, I met one of the brokers at CBRE introduced us. So he, like me, had been a broker for 10 years was on the number one team at, at Collier's, you know, incredibly more successful than than I ever was in the brokerage world. And I'd done, you know, a lot of big deals here. And so he went on a two-year honeymoon with his wife and traveled the world and went to six continents. And um, one of the brokers at CBRE said, hey, you know, I think you guys would really get along well and you guys should meet. And so I figured out that he knew John and... So I go, you know, I'm going to go meet John to go look at this little deal right after this. Do you want to come? And so I always joke, you know, I ended up buying a building with Jeff the first day I met him. <laughs> and that was what, 2018? Yeah. And so uh, and so now we've moved on. You know, that deal was a little 11 unit deal. The, we added a couple studios too. Um and spent about 50 a door on rehab. And we just closed our biggest deal, uh, 176 unit project out in Yuma that we bought for uh, 22.6 million. So, you know, we've really grown and it's pretty, pretty incredible to see what we've done in, in a pretty short time period. What do you do versus what do they do? Sure. So Jess is really responsible for 
you know, I guess structuring, you know, the capital stack and sourcing debt and really managing the transactions. Um, and, you know, he's incredible with title work and, and stuff like that. And then John is more of a controller uh, and really, you know, is super thorough and detailed at going through the books and, you know, asking really great questions about, you know, just, Hey, what's going on over here? You know, we're way over budget over here or, you know, here, we can move some money out of this bucket into this bucket um, and tracking renovation schedules and stuff like that. And then just because I managed all these small rehabs on these old buildings when I first came out here, I had gotten some pretty good experience with that and, and learned how to navigate, you know, the cities pretty well and, and sourcing labor and materials and how much stuff could cost, should cost. Um, and so I really kind of handle more of our CapEx sort of stuff. And, and y'all, um, y'all syndicate, you see all deal by deal, you raise capital deal by deal. Yeah, exactly. So every deal gets put into, you know, a single purpose entity and, and yeah, it's a unique investor pool for each deal. All right. Let's spend like 10, 15, 20 minutes kind of walking through what a deal would look like. Um, maybe we can talk about the one you're about to do. Uh, we don't have to, if you've already closed on it, great. If you haven't, don't want to get specific. We can just talk high level, but like, how do you, how do you find most of your deals? You know, what? it's just all brokerage relationships. Like, you know, I brokered for a lot of years. And so one of the first things that I did when I came out here, because, you know, having that experience, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get to these guys that were controlling a lot of inventory and get them to show me deals right away. Right. Um, and so as a new guy to the market, one of the things that I did was I called up the regional over at Marcus and just said, Hey, you know, I'm an old Marcus guy. I'm coming out here looking to start syndicating deals. Um, who are some young guys in your office? They're showing up every day. They're doing what they're supposed to be, do, you know, doing what they're supposed to that maybe don't have some of the relationships that the older guys in the office have. And, you know, would you mind setting me up with them? I'd like to take them out to lunch or coffee. And so almost like, like I was cold calling as a broker. Now I was cold calling brokerage offices. And so building those relationships with the young guys, uh, that's how I got my first few deals when I came out here. Still to this day, you know, all of us were fairly active in the market before we partnered together. So we knew a lot of those people. And then obviously Jeff having had a background of brokering here for 10 years, really knew everybody in the market. So, so I send you a deal. How do you, how do you at least get to a spot where it's, where you're like, I need to go at least it's worth my time to drive out there and start looking at it. Like, what are you looking for? as it relates to how y'all strategize to go, this is something we need to start spending some time digging into. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the first thing that we do is we've got an incredible analyst that works for us full time, Nathan. Uh, he worked for Jeff on his brokerage team for eight years. And so he'll underwrite the deal. Uh, and then the three of us will get on a phone call and start looking at it together. And we're kind of unique in that, we've kind of taken a three pronged approach on stuff that we'll look at, right? Like we'll look at 
uh, your traditional value add in Phoenix. And we've done those deals. Like I mentioned, you know, we're wrapping up a renovation on a deal that we bought on a 34 unit deal that we bought last year where we put 50 a door into it. And then, um, we bought Lytech deals, you know, in these small kind of tertiary markets. And then, um, we're currently in escrow on a 2020 build up in Prescott. And so really we're just not afraid to get our hands dirty and spend some time figuring out the deal and and if there is a good deal there and so the first step is to get it underwritten and then just see you know if we can get close to our returns and then you know is it worth spending the extra time to figure out you know hey is there any other value that we can add here one of the deals we found out that a seller had a had a loan from the county on it uh that they thought was forgivable and it didn't turn out being forgivable. So then we got them to pay us to assume the 0% interest loan. And so we really get deep, deep in the weeds, figuring out these deals once we decide to spend the time. And how are you creating value? Is it the same playbook over and over or are there different ways that you create value based on each deal? Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, to give you an example, it's, it's very different. You know, your traditional value add in Phoenix has just gotten really competitive because the playbook is, you know, paint the building white, paint the doors a bright color and figure out a way to get washers and dryers. And so that, that space has become really competitive and those deals aren't making as much sense. And so we don't want to just, you know, be stuck in that one spot or confined to that deal type just because, hey, that's what we've done. Then we started looking at uh, LIHTC stuff. And and what's LIHTC? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no. So it's low-income housing tax credit. And so basically, the government will give these affordable housing developers tax credits as an incentive to develop you know, low-income housing. And so they'll put a deed restriction on the property where, you know, say for 30 years, Rents can't be above 40% of area median income, 50% of AMI, and so on. We just kind of started figuring out the landscape of that world because in that space, it's really a lot of institutional capital. And then there's really only a couple of groups in the state that are running around and buying stuff and call it the sub $15 million space. And so it's just so much less competitive. But you know, your barrier to entry is a lot of compliance work and a lot of legal. And then, the, you know, the title reports on those deals get fairly complex, which Jeff, again, is, is great at, my partner. And so that's been a huge kind of like almost value add component because there's a rule called the, the qualified contract. And so you can look in these deed restrictions and see if the property is eligible for that qualified contract. And you can actually submit to the state to to remove those deed restrictions and take those communities market rate. So like to give you an example, we bought a building in a town called Wickenburg that was 2003 construction, weighted average unit size of a thousand square foot units, all three bed, two baths, two bed, two baths. And we paid, you know, 65 a door for that building, 65 bucks a foot. And it's brand and it's brand new. Um, and so, you know, we're going through that qualified contract process now to take that community market rate. And it takes about 12 to 18 months, but our rents will move from call it a 650 average 
up to 1100, you know, and that's with no capex. All right. Let's let, let me ask a couple questions just so I make sure I understand this. So I'm a seller that owns one of these and I just put it under contract with you at call it 65 bucks a foot, you know, a thousand square feet, three twos, two twos, the whole deal. Is the contract with me 18 months or do you buy it as is and bet on the come that you're going to get these restrictions lifted that allow you to bring it to market rates? No. So we'll close it and, and bet on the come, so to speak. And so, you know, in order to do that, because the rents are so low, we're putting the equivalent of basically private money on it. And yeah, so we'll hold those deals for, you know, 18 to 24 months and remove the deed restrictions and then refi all of our capital out. So you have to put no money in. So you're going to buy this, let's say in 60 days. How do you get really comfortable that what you're setting out to do, which is remove these deed restrictions is possible? Like when you close these, is there a chance that it doesn't happen or you're, you're pretty damn sure it's going to happen. It's just the time it's going to take to get it done. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, so it's, it's written into these deed restrictions that you do have the ability to do this. So you have the ability to do it by right. So we're, we're very confident in that. And another thing, so part of that qualified contract pr- process is, you know, you need to get your qualified contract price because that building then gets put up for sale on the Department of Housing's website, right? And somebody else can come buy it. And if they buy it, they have to buy it and keep it within that LIHTC program and keep operating it as a low-income housing community. And so that calculation is a calculation that's written into the federal tax code. And so you can go hire a consultant to give you this QC price. And so you want to make sure that there's a good delta in the price that you're in escrow at and the QC price, right? Because if somebody comes and buys that thing from you, you can't really stop it, but you know, at least that way you're going to make money, right? Yep. So you have to list the property on HUD's website for a certain period of time and somebody has a right to buy it from you at what you determined was some markup price. Yeah. So based on that calculation, it goes on the Department of Housing's website and somebody could come in and purchase it at that predetermined price based on that calculation. And and it has to stay up there for 12 months from the day you submit. So just like we're like, simple question, why would the seller that owned it originally not just go through this process and lift it himself? Is it because they don't know what they're doing or they've already made their money? And like, is there a certain reason why people sell or all different reasons? All different reasons. But I mean, I would say the biggest one kind of in the you know, again, in that like sub $15 million spaces, like these LIHTC developers, you know, they get paid some pretty big fees for development fees. And then they get paid, you know, they make some pretty good money by selling off those tax credits. And then, you know, by operating the building, they'll usually make a management fee and stuff like that. And so they make their money building stuff. So a lot of times, you know, they'll spend 10 or 15 years collecting those fees and um, once a lot of the clawbacks or are, are a lot of that risk is taken out because enough time has passed, you know, they're ready to move on and, and move on to the next deal. Got go it. build something else. 
Okay. Going back to like a more traditional, maybe value add deal. You've, you've mentioned multiple times putting 50 a door in. So let's just take a deal like that. You're, you're underwriting that, Hey, we're going to buy this. We're going to put uh, money into the property to enhance the value. And we're going to raise the rents. Therefore we're going to raise the value of the property. What are you doing? Is it 50,000 a door? And what, what are you doing when you're putting that much money into a property? What all, what all's happening? Yeah. So, I mean, to give you an example, that 34 unit that we did, uh, it's in a great neighborhood, uh, got brought to us off market, like right around Christmas time, the seller wanted to, uh, combine this asset or the proceeds from it with another larger asset. And so a broker brought it to me and we were kind of going back and forth. And so he just said, Hey, you know, the seller's just really worried about execution risk and, and certainty of close. And so I said, okay, well, you know, here, if he'll sell it at this price, there's nothing that's so screwed up on this building that I'm going to be scared of it at that price. I, in other words, there'd be enough equity to go fix it. Right. And so I just told him, okay, well here, tell him we'll put $150,000 non-refundable that contract before we've done an inspection or anything, which today is is probably less common than it was, you know, a year and a half ago here on a 34 unit deal, certainly. And so we purchased that property for 117 a door and we put a million four uh seventy one into it. And that's for, you know, basically gutting the whole place. You're doing doing new plumbing for washers and dryers, you're upgrading electrical systems, you're rewiring and putting in new cam lights, you know, you're scraping popcorn ceilings, you're still cutting floors to to do those new plumbing runs. So I mean that's basically for a new unit top to bottom, right? Yep. And how long is that rehab taking? Is it did you have to move everybody out or were you just going unit by unit? No, so what we would do was we would do, you know, call it three to six units at a time just because we wanted to keep the occupancy up and we had some loan covenants that required that. Um, And so what we would try and do was we would try and figure out ways where we could vacate. It's a three-story building. So we'd try and figure out ways where we could vacate, you know, all three in a stack so that if you had to reroute plumbing, you were just... so to speak, tearing people's unit up once, right? Yep. Are you doing anything to the exterior? Or is it all mainly interior stuff? Yeah, no, that's exterior too. So like totally rebrand, uh, repaint, all new signage, all new landscaping, lights. We just repainted carports. The parking lot was in pretty good condition. So we didn't do anything to that. But um, yeah, I mean, we spent about 75 grand on the exterior. So about 2200 bucks a unit. When you when you're rebranding and signage, do you hire a third-party firm or do you all just kind of come up with the name and hire somebody to create a logo? How do you think about that? So we hired a company to come up with a few different name ideas and then we're really lucky that one of my partner's wives is is a big-time exterior interior designer and she does like you know, these huge resorts down in Cabo and Stephen works on projects like that. And so we had a different designer working on it before and I called Jeff and I go, Hey, give me Mandy's number. I'm calling your wife. We need some, we need some help here. And so 
you know, within 24 hours, she produced this like awesome vision board and, you know, paint schemes. And yeah, it's great. You got to be scrappy, man. Yeah, for sure. So a lot of these deals are I, I, like, from what I understand, they're, they're bought with some type of bridge debt and you're trying to execute your plan in X amount of months. So let's talk about that for a second. How did you finance it going in? How long did you anticipate this kind of renovation value add plan taking? And then what do you do once you've executed it? And I did forgot to ask, how much were you able to raise rents by doing all that? Sure. Yeah. So in, in terms of rent, we raised rent on this building by about 60%. And then we put a bridge loan on this that was 80% of the purchase. And then 100% of the CapEx. So, you know, super high leverage. And I wouldn't encourage anybody to do that unless, you know, you feel really, really confident that you got a screaming deal like we did on this one. You know, we certainly wouldn't have done that if we didn't feel that way. And then that was through a lender named Bank Corp that since folded. And so, you know, <laughs> that was a that was an interesting, interesting thing. So we actually just got our last draw on that the other day. So the senior loan on this thing on a 5.9, you know, almost a $6 million capital stack was four and a half million bucks. And so we figured that that renovation process we said was going to take us about 18 months. I think we'll probably beat that even with everything that's gone on over the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had a one-year lockout on that loan. And then it's just a 1% fee and we'll refinance that deal out. And I think we're figuring that that'll pull, we'll pull about 70 or 80% of our equity back out, depending on where that appraisal comes back in and just put agency debt on it and, and continue to hold that. It's in a really, really quality location. It's surrounded by, you know, houses that are call it six to, you know, a couple million dollars. Okay, so like, what were the terms of the first loan? You said it was eighty percent LTV plus capex. What was the interest rate on that? And were there any like unique covenants? Yeah, so our interest rate on this. Let's see. At the time, what were we over LIBOR? So it's it's thirty day LIBOR plus three and a half. So that rate is you know sitting somewhere probably just south of four maybe 3.75 to four, somewhere in there. And that was the bridge loan? And that was the bridge loan, yeah. Damn. So on the total capital stack, uh, we were 77% loan to cost. So that's not loan to value on a 30-year AMO. So, I mean, it was a great, great loan. And those loans, they typically give you what, two or three-year terms or something? Yeah, so typically on a on a bridge loan, depending on the size, you know, usually on bridge, the call it the cutoff being about five million, you'll get a three plus one plus one, where the plus ones are you can pay a point and extend another year, and there'll be something like that with interest only payments for for that entire time. Okay, so you get the loan, you've executed your plan, you've raised rents. When do y'all start engaging? with the agency to start getting a refinance loan? Is it once you're fully done or once you kind of see light at the end of the tunnel? And like, how long does it take to get that loan? 
Yeah. So typically we'll start re-engaging the lender, you know, after we finished and started stabilizing the property, call it, you know, we're 30 days into that stabilization period. And that's because, you know, they need to see some seasoning on those rents. So by the time you get through underwriting, they'll have 60 to 90 days of, of books and records to underwrite off of. And how long does it take to get the loan? Is uh, These are government-backed. I'm assuming these are like Freddie and Fannie loans? Yeah. So we're all doing all agency, Freddie and Fannie. Um, and those loans typically take anywhere from, you know, about 60 days to close, maybe plus or minus 30. Yeah. And you're going to get 70 to 80% of your equity back out of the deal. Exactly. And so, you know, at that point, your cash on cash returns, you know, they go through the roof, right? Because you've only got 20% of your capital left in the deal. Those loans, you know, you're sitting at, you know, right around 3%, depending on on what rate you get. And typically you'll get, if you do, you know, lower LTVs, you'll get full-term IO. If you go a little bit higher, 70 or 75, you'll get two to three years of IO. It's just a a vehicle to return a lot of capital to your investors and really amplify your cash on cash. And, you know, the great part is a lot of our investors, they don't necessarily want their capital back, right? Like they're happy to get it, but they're, they're calling us going, Hey, where's the next deal? It's a great vehicle to produce some incredible returns and then, you know, get the opportunity to go do it again. Yep. How do you typically structure your deals? Is it like some type of preferred return with a split after investors have gotten all their money and pref back? Yeah. So the way that we work is, so we'll do a seven pref and we'll take a 1% to 2% acquisition fee, depending on the deal. We'll take a one to 2% asset management fee and that's of equity managed. And then we haven't charged really any other fees on one deal. We charged a construction management fee and we just, you know, haven't been a fan of, of seeing people to death. We'd rather take a bigger promote. And so that's why we do the 6535 on the back. And it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Everybody, you know, your investors start to get a feel for how your structure works. And once they get comfortable with that, they like it. And so. Yeah, we've just kept it the same. Haven't haven't had a huge need to change it to this point. And on that thirty-four unit deal, um, how is it managed? Is it? I'm assuming y'all aren't third party. Are y'all using third party managers, or do you have your own management business? Yeah, no, we do all third party management. I did self management on the first couple small small deals uh, when I came out here, and you know, it's just such a headache that I would encourage anybody not to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's just a low margin business. That's, it's just kind of a race to the bottom is the way that I always put it. Who can charge the lowest fee? And so it's not a business that I want to be in, you know, and our property manager, you know, he's been in town for 40 years, like just a great, great guy become you know, almost like a father figure to to the three of us just takes care of us, looks out for us. You know, he's been a great source for, for deal pipeline as well, you know, just cause he's got about 9,000 units in town under management. So he'll call us and just say, here, go call this broker. I think, I think they're working on this thing. And 
it might shake loose, but don't tell him you heard it from me, right? Yeah. yeah. Did, does he manage your stuff in all these different towns and cities that you're in, or do you guys go, have a manager in each market? So we use two different management companies. So the guy that I just spoke about, we use him for all of our stuff in Phoenix. And then we use another property management company who's actually headquartered here in Phoenix as well. Um, that's got a big presence in town, but they have they have a team that deals specifically with LIHTC stuff. And with there being all these certification requirements from the Department of Housing and compliance, you know, you really just need to make sure that you've got somebody that's got that experience and knows what I's to dot and what T's to cross. And so we use them on on most of that stuff that's in these other markets. It sounds like just kind of by listening, the deals kind of keep getting larger and larger. Is that just because you happen to be stumbling on them or is, you know, you typically see companies like yours that start with smaller deals and start working their way up market? Like, how are you all thinking about growth going forward? Yeah, I mean, we like doing the bigger deals. Um, you know, it's, I always tell people it's the same amount of work to do a $20 million deal as it is to do a $3 million deal. And a lot of times uh, it's actually more work to do the smaller deals. So I'd prefer to spend my time on the big deals. But that being said, we bought stuff like, you know, in November or December, we closed on a little 13 unit deal that's in central Phoenix that is just in an incredible location. We own a couple of other buildings right down the street. And, you know, the opportunity came up to take that down off market. And and so we did it. I never narrow my uh my investment criteria to the point where you know i just totally won't do something yeah one more question kind of going back on property managers real quick but how do you besides having a great relationship like how do you how are you all set up to kind of hold them accountable and understand you know if they're they're the boots on the ground they're the ones talking to tenants like how do you all get comfortable that you know, they're doing the best job. I think that's the one thing that always gets talked about with third party managers is like, are they going to manage it like they own it? Um, and it sounds like, you know, I think part of the trick is understanding how to do that. So how do you all think about it? Totally. So we've divided the asset management up amongst ourselves. And so we have weekly calls with our regional on every deal and just, you know, kind of asking like, Hey, how many notice to vacates this month? What's our delinquency like? And we can go pull all that stuff in the system, but by getting on a phone call and asking those questions, after they've gone through a few of these phone calls, they kind of know what questions are coming. And so it forces them to kind of go prep for that. And they know that you're paying attention, right? And so if they know that you're paying attention, they pay attention. And then one of the other things that we do is when we take over a deal, we typically like to get out there weekly. Some of the stuff that's in a little bit further flung places, that's more difficult, but certainly we're out there bi-weekly. If we're not out there weekly for probably the first three to six months and meeting with the on-site and really getting a handle in our arms around what's going on operationally, what kind of some of their headaches were with you know previous ownership. If we've brought them over or if it's, you know, we put a new on-site on that particular property, figuring out, you know, what they're kind of stumbling with or having trouble with uh, on their end. And the other thing that you can do is it's a people business at the end of the day. And so 
you want to send the message to those people that you're not there to be ownership and to micromanage them. It's how do we provide you guys with support? Because without you, you guys are the engine. You you make these buildings go and you make them operate well. And so what other resources or what other tools do you need from us on our end to do the best job you can do? And so if you're out there and you're sending that message weekly and then you know you get a little bit further into the deal, call it monthly, these people they love working for you because not everybody's doing that. And so really at the end of the day, kind of just zooming back out 30,000 foot view. That's kind of how I look at real estate is uh, it's a people business. And so managing those relationships and, and figuring out how you can put somebody in a position to, to succeed and help them grow for whatever goal or, or career path that they're on. If you can do that consistently, you're going to do very well because those people are going to go to bat for you every single time. Yep. You nailed it. So true. And it's such a like, it's not a fast moving business. So people stay in it longer and their their careers are there. Um, I think the illiquidity in real estate, like to your point, makes things makes people stickier over longer periods of time. And it's not as, it's not like a fad industry, you know, it's always going to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody, everybody needs a place to live. Right. Yep. All right. Uh, spend a little bit of time and then we'll, we'll bring it home to some, some personal questions, but I want to spend a few minutes on just kind of your outlook on the market that you're in Phoenix and Arizona. Like as you sit here today, what excites you about it? Um, what's the, what's the bull case for Phoenix? Yeah. So I think what excites me about it is probably, you know, what excites a lot of people. And it's that you just have this continued population growth that's just rampant. And like I kind of touched on earlier, you had a market that was so bombed out during the great recession that there was really no development or no meaningful development for, you know, roughly five, call it seven years. And, because of that, you've got this huge supply shortage in, in the housing market, and they're not adding single family homes like they were, you know, in the early 2000s. And so you've got all these people moving here. You've got an incredibly diverse uh, employment base. Like you've got State Farm that just relocated headquarters here. Taiwan Semiconductor just announced, uh, you know, a $12 billion facility. Intel is doing a $25 billion expansion. You've got Creighton University doing $300 million uh, campus just north of downtown. You've got Mayo Clinic spending a billion dollars to expand their campus. And so those are all really great jobs that, you know, they've got to bring people in or bring people out of our university system here and they stay here rather than, than going, right? And so uh, the more of those jobs that you bring, then the more ancillary services that that those people that are, you know, call it in the hundred thousand dollar plus category need. And, you know, the more of those people that there are, the more the more renters there are, the more people that, you know, we get the opportunity to provide great housing to. And so with that comes some really great rent growth when you haven't had development for for five to seven years and you've still got the population growth because even though they're building now it can't it can't catch up right 
Yep. So you're still running a deficit. And you mentioned earlier the the moratorium. So the Phoenix put a moratorium on development. For- no, I just I just use that term Got loosely, it. right? Yeah. It's not an actual moratorium. It's just you had literally like no development for five to seven years, and so you just had this this huge, you know, deficit in housing begin to build, and probably like. 13, 14. <laughs> so, you know, it's like I said, even though they're building now, they can't, they can't catch up. They can't keep up with the population growth. Yep. I'll add one more bull case for Phoenix. Y'all might have one of the greatest uh, PGA golf events and you have hole number 16, which you can't, <laughs> you can't replace that. No, for sure. I, we did, uh, we did hole 16 this year and it was, even though we had a, quite a few restrictions in place. It was still a blast. And I think it was the first event that the PGA tour had fans at, you know, coming out of COVID. So that was kind of, kind of cool. What advice would you give to brokers that are wanting to get on, on the principal side? Like when, when is the time and uh, you've clearly been a success a successful byproduct of that? Like, what would you tell people? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's certainly not for everybody. Uh, I kind of looked at the brokerage business as it was kind of like running on the hamster wheel, right? And you're unemployed after every deal. And so I just got to a point where, you know, I saw, I saw a, how you could take capital and continue to recycle it and, and, you know, grow your net worth really instead of, you know, trying to make a, a hundred or $200,000 paycheck a few times a year. And so for me, that seemed like a much more um, attractive prospect than, like I said, continuing to, uh, to just kind of try and do, you know, my 10 to 12 deals a year. Yep. You ever, you have a favorite book, whether personal or business that's impacted you? Oh gosh, here, let me pull up my list. Or I'll ask another question. Do you read? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just finished uh, on audiobook Sam Zell's Am I Being Too Subtle? And that's a great, great book. Ray Dalio, Principles, you know, it's a common one. Obviously, Rich, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, everybody's done that. You know, Gary Keller, Millionaire Real Estate Agent, and The One Thing. Both great books. What's the best way for people to uh, to find you and reach out? Yeah, to reach out to me directly, Twitter, email, phone. I'll get my phone number out. That's fine. So on Twitter, I'm at scottyo 21 You know, my DMs are open. I love talking to everybody on there. The community that we've created is mind-boggling when I sit there and think about it. It's like, you know, you get the opportunity to connect with guys like Moses, like you, like Keith. Um, you know, I had a guy DM me that, hey, I just woke up to a DM that said, hey, I've got a million-dollar check that I want to write you for a deal in Arizona. When can we get on a call? You know, that's, <laughs> that's like awesome. a guy I would have n- never had access to otherwise. And so that community has just been such a life-changing thing for me over the last year. Uh, and I've enjoyed it so much that, yeah, I mean, anybody can reach out to me there. 
My email address is scott, S-C-O-T-T, at F-S-O-C-A-P dot com. And then my cell number is 310-365-4861. Feel free to give me a call. You're the man, Scott. Thank you so much for uh, for sitting down with me today. This is this has been great. No, thank you for having me. Like I said, uh, I've I've enjoyed listening to all your other guests, and you know, it's an honor for me to get the opportunity to come on here. And there's some really cool folks who've gotten to share some great ideas. The feelings mutual, and for what it's worth, for your first time, you knocked it out of the park. Awesome, I appreciate it, Chris. Thank you. It's right, a great buddy. compliment. Yeah, you bet. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.